My guest today is Professor Paul J. Duplessis. Professor Duplessis holds the chair of Roman law at the University of Edinburgh. He is a legal historian whose research focuses on the relationship between law and society in a historical context. He is the author of six books with publishers including Oxford University Press and Bloomsbury, and the editor of eight volumes with the same publishers. He is also a general editor of the monograph series Oxford Studies in Roman Society and Law and the subject editor for Roman Law for the Oxford Classical Dictionary. I had a wonderful conversation with Professor Duplessis, and I hope you enjoy. Hello, Professor. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for asking. It's very kind of you. Uh, So let's just jump right in. Hmm. Uh, Let's say that I am a Roman citizen, and I get into a a dispute with my neighbor about a chicken transaction. Let's say I I wanted to sell him a certain number of chickens. We have a disagreement about how much we agreed to. Um, Where do we go to settle this legal dispute? Hmm. That's a very good question. Um, I think it's important, first of all, to um, focus on uh, the legal process in itself, much like the modern legal process. So in in the Roman process, the the overwhelming evidence that we have from the available source material suggests to us that um, people tried to, first of all, uh, resolve disputes without accessing the legal system. So, and even when they did access the legal system, there are points in the procedure where one can clearly see that it is designed to um, promote the idea of um, arbitration um, and uh, settling the matter. So, but let's suppose that you couldn't settle the matter and that it was a matter for the courts to deal with. So, um, the the short and the long of it is um, in the republican system of law, um, there is clearly uh, a route marked out, and the route is uh, one approaches the praetor, and the praetor is a legal official um, within the scheme of, of Roman offices of state, um, and that legal official will be in charge of the um, setting up of the dispute, let's put it that way. Now, um, the office of the praetor is a very old office. Um, it was open to both plebeians and patricians. Uh, Livy contains a, or Livy gives us a somewhat ambiguous account as to whether it might have been restricted at first to patricians, but I think there is overwhelming evidence that from quite early on, the office is open to plebeians as well. We have a specific date um, at which the praetorship is first introduced, and the story that is attached to that date is that originally, once the Roman Republic is created, um, the consuls are in charge of, of, of most areas of state, including jurisdiction. But then at some point, we are told the consuls are called away too often at war, and this interrupts the um, regular flow of legal uh, business in Roman courts, and therefore the office of the praetorship is created. And the praetorship then becomes progressively, as time goes by, um, in charge of the 
the maintenance of the courts so in other words that they operate regularly on the days that they're supposed to and also to some extent the procedure which i will talk about in a bit now who could become a praetor um, in theory as i've said the office is open to both plebeians and patricians the reality is of course a bit more complex um already as early as 180 bc the lex villa analis which is a statute um, set minimum age requirements for the cursus honorum, which is the iteration of offices of state um, that one went through. And make no mistake, the praetorship was um, one in a, in a rung of offices that one went through in order with the uh, aspiration of eventually becoming the consul of the Roman Republic. Now, according to Lex Villianalis, the minimum age for the holding of the office of the praetor was 40 during the Republic. It changed a bit in the empire, but let's go with 40. So that also, of course, means that somebody will be quite experienced by the time they reach um, the praetorship as the necessary rung which they have to uh, finish off before they go further in the cursus honorum. Of course, one could also point out that apart from um, the minimum ages, there would be other requirements which were less um, obvious. Um, the first obvious, uh, well, the first less obvious requirement to mention is, of course, wealth. Um, magistrates of the Republic were not paid in any way by the state. Um, it was uh, an honor to hold an office. Um, they had to. Uh, run an election in order to be elected and election campaigns of course cost money so this would have included uh, rather excluded rather uh, people from potentially holding office if they didn't have the available wealth in addition as we will see probably later in our discussion of this when we come to how praetors were elected and so on uh, there is undoubtedly also an, a good character requirement, even though it didn't always work. Think, for example, of Veres and so on, um, because it is not the first rung on the on the ladder of the cursus honorum, and because praetors had to be elected by an official body of the Roman uh, Roman people, um, it would have uh, weeded out uh, those who were unsuitable for the job and also those who had not had a good record of holding office before praetorship so yeah bear that in mind um when it comes to you know who could be a praetor for example that's fascinating uh, sounds like mm -hmm. a pretty tough gig to get <laughs> yes I, I i'm not i'm not um um uh, i'm not certain it was necessarily an easy position to hold um in contemporary textbooks on Roman law, for example, um, one would often get this sort of statement to the effect that praetors were not necessarily legally trained. They were um, much like modern day politicians um, on their route to becoming the consul. And therefore they were put in charge basically of the portfolio, the government portfolio, let's put it that, of, of managing the courts. Now, I think there is a danger in overstating uh, the lack of legal knowledge that praetors had or didn't have. Um, and my, my view on this matter, I take primarily from a very good article by the Columbia Romanist um, Arthur Schiller. Um, it's an old article, um, I think from 1949, if I remember correctly, 
and it's called the jurists and the prefects of Rome. And Schiller's point here is, I think one is worth remembering and sometimes too often forgotten, is that if somebody was electable to the praetorship, they would already have either go well. They would already have gone through a number of offices, lower offices in the cursus honorum. One of them being quaestor, um, and the other being either tribune or aedile of the marketplace. Now, let's just talk a little bit about these things. Quaestors were. Um, on the lower side of the rung of the cursus honorum, but they were involved in the management of taxation and the collecting of taxation. Um, whereas tribunes, of course, were involved in a variety of different things, most famously the tribune of the plebs that could intercede on behalf of the plebeians. But more importantly, I think the aedile of the marketplace is, is an important um, prerequisite for praetorship that people sometimes forget about. Now, the aediles of the marketplace were effectively officials who were tasked with running markets. And as a result of their um, running of the Roman markets, they had to engage with quite a number of legal matters, um, specifically they could also create rules in relation to um, the running of the Roman markets. Most famously, um, from the rules of the Aedile uh, in charge of the marketplace, we find rules relating to the sale of slaves and livestock. And these rules have a kind of very interesting second life, but also a very interesting life in, in the development of the Roman law of sale uh, concerning latent defects. And so... I think it's important to appreciate that once somebody was capable of being elected as praetor, they would already have had quite a bit of knowledge, even though not directly about the whole of the legal system, but at least concerning one, the taxation aspects of it, and two, probably also the commercial law aspects of it in as much as it dealt with the marketplace. And more importantly, they would have had experience in drafting an edict, um, which of course is what Praetors did uh, in relation to the legal process. And uh, so I think there was a bit of on-the-job training leading up to the Praetorship, which one should not um, forget uh, in, in in saying that praetors did not have any legal training, I think it's a bit more complicated than it is sometimes made out to be. That's fascinating. Uh, I think some people might say that the practical experience of law is a better uh, educator than maybe a more formal setting. I don't know if I agree, but some people might say that. But anyway, well, oh, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, let's talk about that. Um, so legal education in the Roman Republic, certainly our information about the Roman Republic and certainly about law of the Roman Republic is only really um, uh, let's put it this way, one can one can only really draw inferences from information that we have about the mid to the end of the Republic. Whatever happens in the early Republic is a bit unclear to us because of the lack of source material. But what we have from the mid to the late Republic is very clearly um, a, a rise of a group or a class of people known as the jurists, first um, just a few individuals, later more. But there is no formal legal education available to anyone um, during the Republic if they wanted to become uh, either a jurist or indeed a courtroom lawyer. So there are no law schools as such uh, yet. And um, 
legal education, one should see legal education as being um, predicated upon, first of all, the, the general education which upper-class Roman uh, youths would have undergone. So in other words, training in rhetoric, um, training in philosophy. And on top of that, then, as we know, for example, from Cicero's own comments, um, one would attach oneself as an apprentice to one of these great jurists and then shadow them for a period of time and so learn the ins and outs of legal educate of, of legal knowledge. It wasn't in any way a kind of uh, formalized system of teaching with a law school or anything of that kind. So, um, yeah, it's a system of uh, it's a system of apprenticeship, um, which is not unfamiliar, of course, also to legal education in the nineteenth century and so on. Yeah, that that is definitely a familiar concept if you know more recent uh, legal history. Yes, um, yes. If I remember correctly from reading about American law in the nineteenth century, that was the that was the model as well. Yes, uh, in fact, that was the model of education for Abraham Lincoln. Uh, yes, sure many listeners yes. have heard of him. Uh, mm -hmm. but you had brought up the jurist, and I, I think it's probably a good time to jump into into that concept uh, before we get back to our concrete legal dispute that we're talking about. Mm -hmm. um, I'm going to ask you a pretty broad question: What were yeah. the jurists? Uh, who were mm -hmm. they, and what did they do? Well, um, the reason why the jurists are so important for understanding Roman law is, well, twofold. One, of course, um, looking at Justinian's compilation of legal material, one sees in the digest um, a collection of juristic opinion about law, which is uh, incredibly complex and filled with potential solutions to problems. And so... Um, that, of course, causes one to, to view the jurist in a certain way as a kind of engine of legal change. Uh, another reason why the jurists are important uh, for Roman law is precisely because of that. Um, from the late Republic onwards, and especially during the first three centuries of the empire, the jurists become a real force of legal change. Now, what is a jurist? Um, the answer is it is somebody who decided at some point in their career that they were going to um, make law their profession, let's put it that way. And um, the idea of the jurists as a force of legal change is one of those features of Roman law, which is very interesting to us. They do not necessarily all, um, have a direct impact on legal change, although they have a very large indirect impact on legal change. And so um, in the 19th century, for example, uh, when people started to talk again about the profession of the jurist and what the role of a jurist is in, in a modern legal system, analogies were drawn very clearly, for example, in Germany with um, the modern legal academic and the Roman jurist. Now, um, what did Roman jurists do? Well, we see very clearly from the digest that they wrote um, extensively academic commentaries and practical literature on aspects of Roman law. We also know that they were involved in teaching in as much as there is teaching, um, especially in the first three centuries of the empire. Um, they become very actively involved in um, still apprentice-based teaching, but teaching of that kind. 
Um, and they were also involved in legal practice, even though they were not necessarily the ones who appeared in court um, to uh, present a client's case. They did involve themselves quite extensively in the preparation of a client's case through legal advice, but also through um, drafting of documentation, wills, contracts, and the like. So all these things make them um, a rather large and important driver of legal change in, in Roman law. Of course, they also participated um, in, in more direct forms of legal change. It has often been said that the praetor of any given year would work very closely with jurists and would ask advice about changes which had to be introduced into the edict, for example. Um, and uh, in later periods, say the early empire, um, there is a practice that involves of an emperor having a legal counsel that um, advises the emperor on points of law and things of that kind. So the jurists are the jurists are quite important. And when one looks at the digest today um, and one reads the the disputes and the um, you know the, uh, the 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 argumentation that they use. Uh, to to come to conclusions about facts uh, about points of law, a lot of these uh, types of argument are very familiar to us. They they resonate with us because we can still see ourselves as jurists um, making similar kinds of arguments when it comes to solving legal issues. That's a very helpful description of the jurists. It's such a tough topic to describe and understand. Um, so that's very helpful. I'd honestly love to do a full episode on the jurists, and I plan on doing it in the future, but for now, uh, that description will have to suffice. Take it back to the Praetors for a moment. You mentioned that the Praetors were elected. I'm hoping you could give a more thorough description of the political authority of the Praetors. Well, the authority comes from the Imperium. So praetors were elected officials. They were elected by the Comitia Centuriata, which was one of the three voting assemblies in the Roman Republic. Um, it was an assembly of the people um, uh, divided into centuries, so hundreds. Um, and um, those people or elected representatives of those people um, met together uh, under the leadership of the consul and uh, a, a candidate or more candidates were proposed for the praetorship and they then decided on the back of that um, who would be elected as praetor. Now, all of the senior magistrates of the Roman Republic, um, and remember that the praetorship was second most important under the consuls, so below the consuls was the praetor, all of the uh, um, senior magistrates, both consuls and praetor, had imperium. And imperium meant literally the, the authority of the Roman state. And in the case of the imperium, of the praetor, it was visible, for example, in the bundle of sticks, the fasces, uh, and the axe, which his attendants uh, carried when he was on official business. And that's where the authority comes from. It comes from this, this idea of being an elected official whose election was ratified by the popular assembly in the form of the Comitia Centuriata presented, presided over by the consul. It's very interesting. 
Of course, sometimes praetors were bad. <laughs> we have a very spectacular example of a bad praetor in Cicero's um, prosecution of Verres. No, um, he wasn't exactly being prosecuted for being praetor in the city of Rome. He was prosecuted for being a bad governor of Sicily. But Cicero alludes quite a bit to the fact that there is a pattern of a represent, a represent reprehensible behavior on his part that stretches back very far. And as example of that, he mentions examples of bad behavior on Verres's part when he was praetor in Rome. And so, um, yeah, uh, sometimes praetors weren't good. <laughs> The, yes, uh, that, that's that seems to be an issue always. Yeah, at the very least, of course, they were only there for for a year, so <laughs> presumably that was some small mercy. Right. It seems that the sort of uh, political nature of the praetor would be a double edged sword because, on the one hand, you have a person who has ambitions, so they therefore don't want to seem like they're doing wrong. On the mm -hmm. other hand, maybe their eyes aren't always pointed towards justice in every case uh, because of their ambition. Yeah, yeah, I, I suspect that's probably right. But of course, the 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 constitutional architecture of the Roman Republic is a very interesting thing in itself. And there, I would I would point anyone who wants to read a, an incredibly readable account is Andrew Lintot's book, um, The Constitution of the Roman Republic. There's a sort of um, a, a sister volume known as, I think, Imperium Romanum, which deals with the Roman, uh, the Roman Empire. But The Constitution of the Roman Republic is, in my view, one of the best books that one can possibly read as an introductory account. And it's of, much easier to read than Polybius. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Again, also, if you want to read up virtually everything that can be said about the praetorship, um, I would recommend there's a two volume set by uh, T. Corey Brennan, um, The Praetorship in the Roman World or something like that. It's a kind of, I think it's Cornell University Press, probably early 2000s. It is an enormous labor of scholarship. Also, trying to figure out exactly who was praetor when, et cetera, et cetera, um, in the second volume, all these lists of praetors, but it is a magnificent achievement and has a very good account of the origins of the praetorship and what their original role might have been in the early Republic and so on. Thank you for that. That's great. Before we move on, I just wanted to ask you something quick. So you mentioned basically that jurists are involved in the legal process, but they're not the litigators per se. Um, mm -hmm. Were there litigators? Were there people representing parties before court? Yes. And of course, the most famous one in the Republican period is Cicero. Now, um, Cicero is famous for a variety of reasons. One, because he, is, he was so prolific in writing about himself, and therefore... Um, we have so much of his um, courtroom speeches and his philosophical dialogues and his letters and things available to us. So he gives us a unique snapshot of somebody who kind of straddles two professions at the same time. So he had an extensive knowledge of law. Um, in fact, he went through an apprenticeship with some of the greatest Republican jurists. He also betook himself to Athens, I think, if I remember correctly, to study philosophy in great depth, but then decided that he didn't want to be a jurist in quite the sense of, say, 
an, a Gaius or an Ulpian. He wanted to be a, a litigator, uh, a courtroom lawyer, or as the Romans would have said, uh, an orator, an advocate. And um, he made his life through advocacy. And um, one sees in the way that he uh, presents himself as a litigator that um, his view of law in books and law in action, to use the famous Roscoe Pound um, uh, uh, phrase, is fluid. So he has a great deal of respect for the academic study of law, let's put it that way. But he's also not averse to criticizing the Roman jurists when their opinions are to him too um, otherworldly, let's put it that way. In other words, that they wouldn't work in a court of law. And so his relationship with um, the lawyers of the period, so the jurists of the period, is a very interesting one and one which um, is increasingly being studied by those who are interested in Cicero and also interested in the sort of legal environment of the late Republic, which was, by all account, um, an interesting and a very fruitful one, but also, of course, a very dangerous one, as we know from what eventually befell Cicero. Yes, he did not have a, a great fate. Um, we know Cicero as a great writer, mm -hmm. but you mentioned he's more of an orator in court. Yes. Is that typical? Did lawyers write or were they purely oral uh, when they were in court? Mm, that's an interesting question. Um, so for the speeches that we have of Cicero, the courtroom speeches, um, it is generally believed that he had somebody in court to write down the speeches for him and that he edited them slightly and then published them, um, published in the sense of circulated them amongst his friends. Uh, we know from his own description that he was committing a lot of the information to memory. Um, so it may be that he had notes or draft notes and that the draft notes then became the full speech afterwards. Um, but certainly because there are very specific rules about deliberative rhetoric and the form and the structure of the argument, uh, it is clear that what he does is he, he um, argues the points according to the forms and structures of, the, uh, of, of deliberative oratory used in a court of law. And that makes it very interesting because trying to convince a lay judge which is what the Roman judge was, um, of the veracity of a claim is something slightly different from making a technical legal point. And this is one of the great themes that runs through um, Cicero's work is when he engages very specifically with um, very technical legal points, how he manages to convince a lay judge of a, of a technical legal point. I think probably the best... Um, the best account of this I've ever seen is Bruce Fryer's wonderful book, The Rise of the Roman Jurists. Um, it is a, it is a, an account of the one of Cicero's most legalistic cases, uh, Pro Caecina, so the defense of Aulus Caecina, in which the matter is essentially a property law dispute um, over the um, ownership of a piece of land which one party claims had it, they had inherited from their now deceased spouse and the other party claimed they had bought it on behalf of the now deceased spouse as an agent or not. 
And um, there he has to deal with very carefully uh, the intricacies of a Praetorian edict, which had only recently been introduced and was still a bit in flux in terms of its wording. And so what he does very carefully is he plays around with the uncertainties of interpretation of this Praetorian edict. It, it's really just a masterclass of how to do how to do persuading uh, when the judge is not a, a technical, technically trained uh, man of law. That is definitely an enduring theme in the law today. You know, lawyers are taught not to write in too much legalese. I'm sure it's the same for academics. You have to make your message relatable. Uh, so that's interesting that there's such an early example of that being done so well. Yeah, I, I think it's all, uh, it's about different audiences, yes. Um, uh, and one needs to be writing aware that one writes for a, a broad audience, not just for, um, you know, for your other academic friends who are reading your articles. There might be, there might be judges, there might be other people in, in, in lawmaking who need answers too, and might be put off, I guess, by overly legalistic interpretations of things. Right, right. That's fascinating. Um, well, so we've we've talked a little bit about about lawyers. Mm -hmm. uh, let's get, let's turn back to the parties. Okay. Um, I have now decided to approach the Praetor. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, today, at least in the United States, we have a complex system of summons and mm -hmm. uh, notifying the other parties. How did I guarantee that my adversary would even appear before the Praetor? Mm. That's a very interesting question. And for the longest time when I was a student and reading all these things about summons in law, in use vocatio, as it's called in Latin, I, I couldn't understand how this could work since, um, you know, what if I just didn't turn up? <laughs> That's a way of avoiding the lawsuit. But of course, um, it's not as easy as that. And um, I think it raises a kind of larger point about whether anyone could approach the Praetor with a legal dispute. So the short answer is, of course, that this is an issue of access to justice. Now, um, in theory, yes, anyone could approach the Praetor with a legal dispute. Um, there were no bars upon anyone accessing the Roman court system, provided, of course, that they had access to it. So in other words, that they were a Roman citizen or that they were one of those classes of people who were allowed to access the, the legal system, even if they weren't a citizen. There were, of course, also status issues um, relating to children and so on, people of young age and these kinds of things, but you can read up on, on that. Certainly, there was no financial barrier to accessing the Roman legal system. Even in the earliest forms of procedure, um, just after the 12 tables, the action at law known as the sacramentum or the wager, the sacramentum or the wager was a reasonable amount and it was dictated by the value of the object under dispute. And so even that was not a bar in any kind of way to accessing justice. And it's one of those enduring features that we see even in the imperial version of Roman law, um, and here I refer you to a wonderful book chapter written by Thomas McGinn and I think Cynthia Bannon, if I could re remember correctly, in the Feshkrift for Bruce Fryer, um, Ancient Law, Ancient Society. Um, the chapter is called Who Was Roman Law For? 
and it goes quite systematically through all of the different um, points of view in modern academic literature about whether Roman law is just a kind of, you know, it is easy to think of Roman law being a stratified society. The Romans were a stratified society where status was important, that the law would have just been a kind of um, a process by the rich for the rich, but it is in fact not that. So even in the... Um, even in the in the height of empire, we can see that people from the lowliest statuses have an expectation that they can take their case to court and that the case will be heard and that justice will be seen to be done. So, yeah. Um, so I can uh, I, I can get my neighbor in court. That's very that's very good to hear. Uh, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Now, how do you get your neighbor to court is, is another question. Right. 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 So. Um, the, the Roman procedure um, in the Republic is one of voluntary summons. So I, I do not have the backing of the state necessarily in getting my neighbor to court. Um, now, that sounds strange to us, but um, the, the long and the short of it is that uh, towards... Uh, there were other pressures that prevented people from just ignoring litigation. Towards the end of the Republic, if somebody was unwilling and didn't want to come to court, one could, in certain circumstances, go ahead with a lawsuit and just regarded them as not there, and that might have very bad consequences for them not engaging with the process. In the earlier period, one can probably say that social pressure and so on led to people actually... Um, uh, you know, taking this matter seriously and bringing them to court, right? Um, now, how did Inus Vocatio work? Well, um, the description that we have from the sources is, for example, and here I have to uh, give a, a nod to my colleague Ernest Metzger's wonderful book, Litigation in Roman Law, is that people agreed that they would meet um, on or near the place where the court was sitting, uh, say, at a statue, in the forum, uh, we see that quite a bit. And then from there on, they would they would do the informal in use vocatio. So they would then go ahead, the two of the, the two parties, and they would approach the praetor. Um, it's a kind of, yeah, or you could go to the praetorian edict, point at something and say, that is the basis of my lawsuit or something like that, and then go before the praetor. But it is a voluntary process, um, of course, with larger issues affecting my participation in it. Right. And you mentioned social pressures and also what sounds a lot like default judgment, um, yes. forcing yes. people to go to court. Those two things are, are very present today. In fact, I think the, the threat of default judgment gets people into court more than anything else oh, uh, yes. nowadays. Um, so, so that's interesting. So we are now in court, but before we talk about the actual trial, we will take a break and hear from our sponsors. Sure. Gaius's garments can satisfy all your garment needs. We carry tunics and togas of all sizes. Need to bundle up this winter? Check out our collection of knee breeches, cloaks, hats, and full-length trousers. Now with branches in Rome, Alexandria, and Antioch, Gaius's Garments is a one-stop shop for clothing for all occasions. And ask for a 10% discount on our saffron yellow collection with promo code Cartago Telenda Est. We look forward to seeing you. Okay, we are back. 
Mm-hmm. We are now in court. Yes. So you mentioned the Praetor's Edict a couple of times. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm hoping you could describe that, uh, where it comes from, what it is. Mm-hmm. Sure. I think that before I do that, uh, it's important just to, th- to, to say one or two words about being in court. Um, so the Roman legal process of the Republic was split into two, um, two stages. The first stage was in front of the Praetor. And the second stage after an adjournment was in front of the judge. And um, these stages did not occur on the same day. Uh, in fact, uh, they, they could occur quite some time apart. And um, the first stage in front of the praetor could take place anywhere. Um, Roman courts were notoriously public, which might also give you some indication that people could be quite keen not to have their proverbial dirty laundry washed in public. Um, so the praetor would set up somewhere um, in a, in a basilica, you know, like a, a large hall, and would then hear uh, litigants, potential litigants, as they, as they arrived on the day, um, and decide first and foremost whether there was grounds any grounds for a legal dispute um, and if he decided that there was there um, then he would assist the parties with the setting up of the legal dispute if he decided that there was no claim to answer for the matter just ended there and um, uh, the parties had to basically go away. Now one can imagine uh, a long line of people waiting to see the praetor on any given day and that the praetor might not be able to deal with everyone uh, on any given day. So to help matters along somewhat, and here I have to again mention Ernest Metzger's work, um, what the praetor would do if it turned out, say, there were only a couple of hours left and it was clear that the line was too long, the praetor could pronounce a kind of uh, what is known as a vadimonium, and it is a it is a promise, a judicial promise, telling all the parties that they have to come back on the day after tomorrow. Um, this effectively forced them to come back on that day, um, uh, the day after tomorrow, and thus, um, in a way, dealt with um, the the the, the so, whole scrum of people trying to see the praetor on any given day. But one cannot. One cannot assume that if the parties went through in use for Cazio and they stood in the line to see the Praetor, that they might on any given day get to the front of the queue <laughs> and uh, be able to deal with that, the legal matter on that same day. It might be that they had to wait for a while in order to get um, to get the matter before the Praetor. Now, w- what did the Praetor do? Um, the, the long and the short answer is if the Praetor decided, so the parties would the parties would set out, say, basically, w- what the nature of the dispute was. It is possible that at this point they might have already taken some legal advice from a jurist about the claim. And then they would approach the praetor and say, this is what we want to dispute over. This is the legal dispute that we want to raise and, and so on and so forth. And what the praetor would then do if he decided that there was uh, grounds for a legal case, he would assist the parties in creating the, the formula. Now, what is a formula? Um, the Roman, if it was a case that required a formula, 
um, if it wasn't another type of legal matter that had to be dealt with, because the praetor could also issue uh, what are known as interdicts, so injunctions and so on. But let's let's do the formula case. So if the praetor decided that there was a case to answer for and that it was covered by the law, um, the praetor would assist the parties in setting up a formula. Now, a, a formula is essentially um, a statement of claim, let's put it that way. For every action that you see mentioned in a Roman law textbook, that action would have a formula. And basically what the formula entailed was it set out um, the things that had to be proven in order to succeed with that action, let's put it that way. And so what the Praetor would do, say it was a case of um, chickens that had been sold and turned out not to be chickens or something of that kind. Yeah, there was a problem with the sale of chickens. So the formula would be for the action on sale. And um, that formula uh, could be, usually was, in the Praetorian Edict. Um, the Praetor could then help the parties setting out the um, the basis of the claim, uh, putting in all the claims and counterclaims that they had to put, that they wanted to put in, all the defenses and so on and so forth, until both parties were happy that this document embodied the entire claim um, uh, in a way that satisfied both of the parties. And the final stage of this uh, first procedure was the selection of a judge, which I will come to in a minute. And when the parties agreed on a judge, the praetor would put the name of the judge at the head of the document. And that is why the full document says at the start of it, let so-and-so be the judge. Um, and then it sets out the, the details of the claim. So that's what parties did in front of the praetor. That's fascinating. I just have two comments. Uh, people, mm. at least in the United States, complain about court congestion, which is real, but at least we don't have to wait on a dusty, hot Roman August day and not even uh, not even get in front of the Praetor. That doesn't sound very pleasant. No, it doesn't. Of course, the, um, the one good thing is that the Romans did not observe weekends in quite the way that we do. So the calendar was kind of binary. So there were days when the courts were open and days when the courts were shut. Of course, the Romans had at least um, already by the late Republic, quite a number of public holidays that dealt with, you know, different gods and state occasions and so on and so forth. But it was the Praetor's job also to make sure that the courts were open when they were supposed to be open and closed when they were supposed to be closed and things of that kind. Yeah, that the calendar of the court functioned properly. That's quite interesting. And the second thing, the, mm -hmm. the process of setting up a formula uh, that sounds an awful lot to me like jury instructions in the United States where the parties, that's not a perfect analogy, but the parties and the judge essentially decide the law and hand to the jury the jury instructions, which has all the law filled out, and then they have purely a fact-finding function. Uh, so it's, it's not dissimilar. Yeah. It's not dissimilar. Remember, the judge in, in, in Roman court cases generally had no legal training. There were some cases in which there some legal training was required, but I'll, I'll talk a little bit about that later. But mostly a single judge, which was the default position, was a lay person who would only have had the same training as, say, any other upper class Roman male. So philosophy and rhetoric. And so they had to be convinced 
using the techniques of philosophy and rhetoric um, that the law was as it was stated to be or professed to be in in the formula. Quite interesting. Quite interesting. Um, okay, so you had mentioned the UDEX. Uh, mm-hmm. it, goes, it goes to the next process or next part of the process. Can you describe the UDEX and what happens there? Yeah. This is a very interesting part of the Roman process. So um, who could be a judge is the question that is always asked. Well, the short answer is anybody could be a judge, provided, of course, that um, you fulfilled certain requirements. Now, there are at least two separate scenarios that one must envision in this case. The one scenario is um, where the parties, when they approach the praetor, have already agreed on an independent third party that could act as a judge for the case. If they had agreed on such a party, then that party would automatically be assigned as, as long as they, of course, are um, uh, are available and want to do it, um, to be the judge in that case. But more commonly, I guess, would be the scenario where the parties could not agree on a judge. And how, how we know what happened in that case is by one of these wonderful incidents of um, historical preservation. And in the Lexirnitana, which is a Spanish town charter uh, from a very small little town in Spain, uh, Roman Spain, we have a description, a fairly beautiful description of how judges were chosen on a sort of municipal level. And the complexity of the way in which judges are chosen there gives us good reason to suspect that these um, town charters were cut and paste and that they probably also reflected on a sort of more rudimentary scale what was going on in Rome. So we can tell from this town charter that the way that it worked was as follows. There would be lists of potential judges and um, the lists... um, uh, at least initially, seemed to have um, been limited. You know, so there would be one patrician list, then there, there would be one list of, say, Roman equites, and then there would be a kind of mixed list. And what parties could do is they could veto <clears throat> a list until they were left only with one list. And then they could veto individual names until I think it was a defendant, if I remember correctly, had the final say. And by doing that, they could eventually whittle down the number of names to a compromise candidate that would then sit um, as the judge. So the the one that was most unobjectionable, (laughs) let's put it that way, to, to, to both parties and would then preside over the case. Now, Again, much like the first stage in the Roman suit, uh, Roman lawsuit, the second stage did not have to take place in any specific place. Um, it could, and indeed we often assume that it did take place sometimes in private. It could even take place in someone's house. Um, and on the appointed day, at the appointed time, the parties would arrive with their orators and the judge would sit and hear the evidence, and then decide the case. That's interesting. Hmm. I I wonder if there was some bit of corruption, uh, which happened at this stage. It seems like if you have sort of all the eggs in the basket of one person, uh, mm-hmm. that person is open to influence. Uh, was corruption mm-hmm. ever an issue with, with these people? Um, 
that's again a, a difficult question to 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 um, to answer. The reason for that is, of course, we we lack qualitative uh, and quantitative information that would that would allow us to make those kinds of of of, of decisions or, or or judgments. We do know that judges. So, first of all, we do know that there was no regularized system of appeal against judgments in the Republican period. Okay, so. Um, one would think that that might be difficult if there had been a problem with the judgment and so on and so forth. But what we also know about is that there are ways in private law whereby one could sue a judge who had, quote unquote, made a case their own. Now, what does that mean, making a case your own? That's a bit difficult for us to interpret, but it looks to us on the basis of modern scholarship that making a case your own was essentially a form of corruption where somebody acting as a judge had manipulated the procedure uh, involved in the case in such a way to favor one or one of the parties and could then be sued. Um, and yeah, so the fact that there is a remedy, a legal remedy that is quasi-delictual, if I remember correctly, um, that allows a party to sue a judge suggests to us that there must have been incidences of corruption um, which necessitated this. But of course, one needs to be a bit careful about that, um, drawing a straight line between those two things. Right. And, and one would assume that this selection procedure, which you described earlier, would mm. do a good job weeding out um, people who would be susceptible to undue influences. Exactly. And we also know that how one got onto that list of potential judges was an interesting one. Um, it seems from the information, although it is a bit scant, that um, people had to approach, say if they were in Rome, they had to approach the praetor and there was some sort of character interview. <laughs> um, so obviously the pool of judges would be people who were wealthy right? So because they had free time um, and therefore presumably they would be incorruptible also because they didn't need money or things of that kind. But there does seem to have been some sort of character interview taking place to, to determine whether it was a suitable person to be a judge in this case. And we know from just this and that comment, you know, sort of aside comments that people sometimes struggled when they were judges um, with with dealing with the matter, and they were very, um, yeah, they 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 struggled to come to a decision, and it it caused them a bit of anxiety. Understood. Okay, that's that's uh, good to hear. Then, um, so when we're in front of the UDEX, mm. I'm wondering if there are sort of evidentiary rules, rules of procedure. Uh, you know, was hearsay allowed, or mm. you know, was this sort of a uh, you can say what you want and let the chips fall where they may. Again, uh, quite a complicated question to answer, um, primarily because we lack something which we have for the Middle Ages and onwards. And that is something that's known in, in medieval Latin as stilus curiae. So in other words, the practice of the court. Um, a lot of evidentiary rules and things of that kind would necessarily be tied up with what is known as the stilus curiae, and we don't have that for Roman courts. So 
this has led some people to say it was a kind of free-for-all. Um, I'm not so convinced that it was a free-for-all. Um, and for two reasons. First of all, um, the rules of deliberative rhetoric used in Roman courts were quite strict about what could be presented and how it could be presented and what one could say and what one couldn't say. So I think in a way, the conventions of deliberative rhetoric acted as constraints and therefore as a form of evidence, uh, rules of evidence. Now, when one looks at Cicero's accounts of his cases, for specifically Caecina, one is struck by the fact that um, when he mentions documentary evidence, he's always very dismissive of documentary evidence and claims that it could be falsified and that it was falsified. When he refers to the witnesses of the other party, he really lays into their character um, he makes them all out to be basically disreputable people. Um, this suggests to me that there were conventions, Tilus Curiae, that we just don't really know a lot about. Um, but there must have been something. Um, I, I, I cannot imagine that it would just have been completely um, a, a, an, an open, um, uh, you know, a, a sort of open, open time. Uh, to say what you want. Certainly, it does not square with what we understand deliberative rhetorics conventions to be. Right. That makes a lot of sense because you have this society which has built up this pretty elaborate procedure for an, for an ancient society. Uh, it wouldn't make any sense that once they get in the room, anything goes. Um, so yeah, that, that no, makes a lot of sense. The one thing, though, that is very strange to us about it is that the Romans didn't seem to have a hierarchy of sources of law. <laughs> um, and so it's very clear that when they cite legal sources in cases, in as far as we can see them, it's kind of a bit of everything. You know, somebody will cite a lex, other person will cite something else. And, you know, so it's it's not as if we, it's, they don't have the rules that we do about say, written law is better than unwritten law, or a statute trumps this, or, you know, or something of that. There are a few rules that one can sort of glean from the last two titles in the digest, but nothing approaching a sort of hierarchy of sources of law, as we understand. Got it. That could make things messy, I would assume. Oh, yeah. Uh, but, I, but, I, uh, it did. I think it did. <laughs> right, right. Okay, so let's say I won my case against mm -hmm. my neighbor for the chickens. Yes. Wondering what sort of remedies would be awarded there? Damages, equitable relief? Um, okay. No. Well, I mean, in the case of the chickens, it's very interesting. So um, let's first say that, as you will read in any textbook on Roman law, in Republican Roman law, specific performance is not something that a judge can, can award to a, a, a victorious party. The reason for that is probably to do with state machinery not existing in order to enforce specific performance of any kind, um, but it may be more complicated than that. So the judgment, um, as stated in the formula, would always be a monetary sum equivalent to the value of the object. Now, the parties could agree to hand over the object if it still existed 
in instead of the monetary penalty you could put a little rider into the formula to that effect but let's go with a monetary penalty so um in the case of the chickens because the contract of sale in roman law is one of the so-called consensual contracts that means that the formula permits the judge to decide whatever is fair and reasonable in the case based on the principle of good faith bona fides and that meant that in practice a judge could take a greater number of factors into account in deciding what was the appropriate amount say for the chickens right so it could also include things such as um yeah consequential you know costs and things of that kind um it is uh yeah it's one of those features of the consensual contracts that good faith allows for a a more rounder assessment of the amount of compensation or whatever needs to you know could be could be claimed for that's very interesting and i'm planning on actually having professor fryer on so i will certainly discuss that with him but i think we're about to hit an hour so we can wrap up thank you very much for coming is there anything that you are working on that you would like to plug I'm currently working on a book about Henry Maine, um, Henry Maine's Ancient Law of 1861. Uh, it's, a, it's a natural progression of my work on ancient law. And I became interested in this book because it is so important uh, moment in English, um, English legal scholarship, not just for Roman law, but also for historical jurisprudence more generally. So what I'm trying to do is, and I hope I can do it successfully, is to look at his sources for the construction of ancient law. Now, that's complicated because there are virtually no footnotes in this book, but it's very clear that once you do a bit of a textual reading that he was very, very worked into the German debates about Roman law in the early um, to mid-1800s. And um, I hope I can I can show that, you know, this, this book needs uh, a new airing. Um, and that it's actually quite important for our understanding, not just of Roman law, but also of ancient law more generally. Great. That sounds very interesting. Um, well, thank you, Professor, for all of your time. This was an excellent conversation. I, I learned a lot. Uh, My pleasure. I hope you, I hope you, you find it useful. <laughs> mm -hmm.